Good morning, everyone. Everybody's fellowshipping. I love that. But if you could find your seat, we'll we'll begin our service. Welcome to our worship service this morning. So this morning we're going to have our worship service sort of guided by Psalm 46. And so to begin our service, I'd like to ask if you're able to stand up, let's read together responsibly Psalm 46 and follow the cues on the screen. So men, you're going to start. Women, you're going to echo. Let's go, men. God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. Let the oceans roar and foam. Let the mountains tremble as the waters surge. God dwells in that city. It cannot be destroyed. From the very break of day, God will protect it. The Lord of heaven's armies is here among us. The God of Israel is our fortress. He causes wars to end throughout the earth. He breaks the bow and snaps the spear. He burns the shields with fire. And together, the Lord of heaven's armies is here among us. The God of Israel is our fortress. Please be seated. At the great declaration we just sang, right, that the God of angel armies, right, the God of who leads armies of angel, he is here among us. He is our fortress. He is our protector. And we get to gather this morning and celebrate that we are loved and cared for by such a great and awesome and powerful God. If you're, if you're here this morning, you're new with us. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you're here joining us this morning as we join together just to worship our God. If you are new or visiting, a couple of things for you to know. First, just as a church, we desire to be about three things. So it be about reaching people with the gospel, growing to be like Jesus, and serving others. So as you look at your bulletin, uh, there's just a number of ways that we can do each one of those things. Um, a couple just to bring to your attention. So coming up on Tuesday, May 3rd, our church will host the, the community dinner for the Rock Mission Center. We'll provide the food and we'll help distribute the food up there. It's a way to reach people in our community. So if you want to be a part of that, there is information in your bulletin. Also, it's a way to grow. If you want to grow, one way you can do that is to become a member of our church and kind of plant your flag that you're going to be a part of what we're doing here. If you're interested in membership, our next membership class is going to be May 14th. That's a Saturday. It'll be from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. 
So we would invite you to be a part of that and just kind of plant your flag and say, I want to be a member of what's going on here. If you're interested in any of those things or you just want to communicate anything with me or the church, there are connect cards in the seat back in front of you. You can fill one of those out. Um, you can place them in the, the boxes on the back wall on your way out. That's also where tithes and offerings can go. And as we continue this morning in worship, I'll just invite us to kind of prepare our heart and our minds by joining me in a time of prayer. Father God, we thank you for the chance to gather. Each of us is coming from lives that are busy, that have different kinds of stress and trials going on in them. We come from diverse places and diverse backgrounds that you've drawn us all together here in this place. So we can worship you and we can be drawn closer to you. So pray that you would be at work this morning through the songs that we sing, through the word that we hear to give us a a renewed and a deeper sense of what an amazing God you are and what a great Savior Jesus is. Pray that we would be conformed this morning more and more to the image of your Son Jesus and that we would glorify you as we sing now. Would you be prayed by all that takes place here this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we are going to learn a new song, and I have some friends lined up in a minute to uh, teach us this song. Many of you know our missionaries, Mel and Amy Ellenwood, and some of you old-timers remember when Mel was the first youth pastor at this church back in the early 1990s. As you also know, Mel is now a senior leader of Josiah Venture, which is an organization of 320 staff and thousands of volunteers who are dedicated to reaching 16 Eastern European countries for Christ. And I would also mention that one of the countries is Ukraine. And when the war broke out in Ukraine that you all know about, Josiah Venture dropped just about everything they were doing and switched to doing relief. So they have, um, as of uh, four days ago, they had delivered 250 tons of supplies into Ukraine, 386,000 meals, and bust out 2,300 refugees, mostly women and children, and has housed them at the camps and, and conference center that they have in Poland and Czech, and are working with their network of uh, 752 churches to find those people something long-term where they can stay until that crisis is settled. And they're doing this all in the name of Jesus. Now, I have to confess that I have been embarrassed a number of times by the Christian church in the last few years But I am so proud of how the church has really led the way in coming to the aid of Ukrainians. And uh, Mel and Amy, I know you guys watch our service every once in a while, so I just want to tell you on behalf of all of us that we are so proud of you 
and what you are doing and what Josiah Venture is doing. You guys are showing us what the biblical concept of righteousness is in that you are looking out for the most vulnerable at great personal cost. So we love you guys and we continue to pray for you. So what does all that have to do with the new song? Well, Mel and Amy's daughter, Hannah, is part of the worship ministry at Southlands Church in Southern California. And earlier this year, some of their leaders wrote a song based on Psalm 46. And when the war was threatening in Ukraine, someone suggested that they translate that song into Ukrainian as an encouragement and a source of peace and hope for the church in Ukraine. So because Hannah grew up in Eastern Europe, and maybe because she learned to first sing in public right here in Three Lakes, she was chosen to sing the, the Ukrainian part of this song. And so uh, my hope is that as you watch she and the, the worship leader who wrote the song sing this song, that you will not only learn the song, but that you will see how these scriptures could encourage those living out the nightmare in Ukraine, but also encourage you in the trials and disappointments and fears that you might be going through. So let's listen to this song, Be Still and Know, sung by the songwriter Sam Cox and our very own Hannah Ellenwood Munoz. Spokinim
Dan, let's sing together.
Father, it is such good news that you're just saying that even though the nations may rage, that you are still God, you are still sovereign and in control over it all, that no schemes of evil men, no schemes of nations will ever thwart your plan, but that you are God, you are in control. And because of that, we can be still. We can trust in your goodness, your ultimately good purposes for your creation. Trust that you are at work to bring about those good purposes. Father, we pray for those affected by the war in Ukraine. All the pain and suffering and hurt that conflict is causing. Pray that you would be at work in the midst of those trials and hardships to help people find trust in you, that they can be still, even in the midst of pain, in the midst of chaos and hardship, that they can be still and know that you are God. We, we praise you for the work of, of ministries like Josiah Venture and others that are doing work over there. Pray that you would give them fruitful and effective ministry as they seek to bring about your glory, even in the midst of hard situations. We pray this on Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, shortly before we moved here to Three Lakes, a little over two years ago now, I, I went on a trip with some people from my, my last church to, to Italy and to Israel and to Jordan. Again, it was a trip that I was incredibly grateful that I got to, to go on. It was both educational and it was interesting, it was beautiful, it was a great trip. But there were a few moments on that trip that were a little challenging, a little difficult, interesting at times. And a lot of those interesting and difficult moments stem from the fact that I was the youngest person on the trip by like 30 years. <laughs> like I was the only person on the trip who like wasn't retired. <laughs> and so because of that, <clears throat> like there were certain places on the trip that we went that were beautiful and they offered these like interesting hikes that were, that seemed really beautiful that I would have loved to do, like to walk to and go on these hikes, but our group chose not to do because the uh, old people <laughs> didn't feel like walking that much. Right? So I missed out on some nice hikes. Right? And the age of our group also made going through customs and border crossings a bit of an adventure. Right? For example, when we tried to leave Israel to fly back to the United States, Israeli security was, for some reason, like super skeptical that like a, a dark-haired, dark-eyed, bearded, 32-year-old was trying to flee the country with a group of 60- and 70-something-year-old Scandinavian Minnesotans. Like, they were suspicious. Right? Like, I nearly missed my flight because 
Like, they questioned me for so long that I tried to leave Israel. Like, it's also an adventure crossing from Israel into Jordan at one point. Right? So Israel and Jordan, like, they're not the best of friends. They don't get along great. So it's a bit of a tense border crossing. And on our trip, we had this woman who, like, she had recently had a pretty intense medical procedure, and so she was on like, a lot of medication. So she had a, a three-week supply of that medication all in her luggage as we tried to cross into Jordan. And the Jordanian authorities like, were a little suspicious that those medications were not legitimate medications, but they were, in fact, illicit drugs, which caused a lot of back and forth and a lot of delays and some really tense moments at the border because she didn't have the medicine. She was in severe medical trouble, but they were wanted to confiscate them. But it was an adventure. Like, everything worked out in the end, but it was a bit tense. And yet, despite those tense moments, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that we, got to, we went to the effort to get into and go visit Jordan. In fact, like our time in Jordan was probably my favorite part of the whole trip. Like I realized if you like polled people who went on a trip to Italy and Israel and Jordan, like which of those countries was their favorite, like Jordan would probably be a distant third in that poll. Right? But, but for me, Israel or Jordan was my favorite. And it was my favorite for a couple of reasons. One, like just the natural beauty and scenery and landscape of Jordan is incredible. All you need to know about Jordan is that like one of the people who filmed The Martian, which is set on Mars, like when they're looking for a place anywhere on Earth that most would replicate and represent Mars, they chose to film in Jordan. It's just a beautiful unique landscape in that place. And also while in Jordan we visited Petra, which is one of just the most interesting things we did on that entire trip. If you're not familiar with Petra, it's like an ancient city where they carve buildings like literally into the cliff walls. To give you a sense of it, I got a couple of pictures here from, from my trip. So that's like one of the buildings, they just carved the building into the cliff. There's another one here. And finally, one more here. And this last one, it's a little bit hard to see because it's so zoomed out, but on the left, you can kind of see some building carved in. On the right, you can just get a sense of the landscape of Jordan in general. You can see why it was chosen to represent Mars in a movie. So I loved Jordan for the scenery. I loved it for Petra. But the thing in Jordan that I was most excited for in this entire trip... In fact, like the one place that I wanted to go above all others on this entire trip was to see Mount Nebo. And we see the, the significance of Mount, Nebo, <clears throat> of Mount Nebo in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 1 through 12. So we're going to be there this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Deuteronomy 34. And before we, before we left on our trip, the, the pastor, our senior pastor of that church, who was leading the trip, he asked me to pick out a couple landmark, a couple of places we were visiting where I would want to lead kind of short reflections or devotions from. And the first one that jumped in my mind was Mount Nebo. I, I just, I love this story and I wanted to lead a, a reflection from there. So just full disclosure, like this sermon's an expanded version of that 
reflection. Right? Typically, I like to do my sermon that part of series. Like we've been going through Luke. We just wrapped up our Easter series. But coming off just a kind of busy week with Good Friday and Easter and some other things, like I decided to just go with this expanded form of this sermon. So next week, we'll jump back into our Luke series, picking up in Luke 14. But for today, we're here in Deuteronomy 34. The starting in verse 1, we read this. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land, from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when I said, I will give it to your descendants. So from the top of Mount Nebo, you can look west, and you can see across the Jordan River and beyond well into Israel. So here's a picture of me here, of kind of the view that you have from the top of Mount Nebo. We went on a bit of a foggy day, so you can't see as far as you sometimes can. But on a clear day from Mount Nebo, you can look and you can see Jerusalem. You can see Bethlehem. You can see the other landmarks in Israel. And this is one of the reasons like, why I was most excited to visit Mount Nebo. Like, so many places that you go on a trip of kind of the Holy Land, especially in Israel, right? There's like this landmark, but there's a church built on top of it, or some shrine there. It's like just swarming with people, and you don't really get a sense of what it was actually like in biblical times. But Mount Nebo, even though there is a church on Mount Nebo, you can you can look out like away from the church and across the Jordan River, and like there's nothing particularly modern in your view. Like you get something close to the same view Moses would have had as he stood there in this passage. And it should be noted right, that even on the best, clearest day, like, you can't, with an unaided human eye, see all the places that this passage tells us that Moses saw. So it seems that God gave Moses some kind of supernatural sight here in this passage so that he could see all the land, right? all that God had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. But God lets Moses see the land. But seeing is all that he'll get to do. Because next we're told, picking up in verse 5, I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross into it. And I don't know about for you, but for me, like the first time I read this, like this almost felt like a, like a taunt. Right? Like, like a little kid holding up something that like his little sibling can't quite reach. Like Moses had been leading God's people all throughout the wilderness for 40 years. He'd been waiting and waiting and waiting for the moment when they could finally enter the promised land. Moses had put up with the people complaining. Like he had interceded for them. He had settled their petty disputes. Like he had been their constant, nearly flawless leader. And now God brings Moses to the brink of all that he had hoped for and waited for over the past 40 years. And right there, as he's on the cusp, God tells Moses, I have let you see it with your eyes, 
but you will not cross over into it. And that is exactly what happens. God showed Moses the land, and then we continue in verse 5. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died. Yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. It's not like Moses was physically incapable of leading the people into the land. He was not some frail, weak old man. His strength was not gone. He would have gone on those hikes with me, like on the trip, right? But God still determined that it's his time to die. Picking up in verse 8. The Israelite grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those things and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deed that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And again, these, these last couple of verses, they just highlight how, how strange it seems when you first look at it that God wouldn't let Moses enter the promised land. No one has ever seen or shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deed that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. Like surely, if that's true then Moses should be worthy to enter the promised land. So why does God bring him up this mountain? Let him see the promised land, only to have him die before entering. And even though it may not, on the surface, make sense to us, what we see in this passage is that God always has a purpose for what he does. And in this passage in particular, we see is that God's purposes involve, always involve keeping His promises. What is absolutely clear in this passage, that our God is a God who keeps His promises. In this passage, God calls His faithful servant Moses up to the top of Mount Nebo, and He, he shows him the expanse of the land. As He's standing there, He reminds Moses that this it's the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob that I will give it to your offspring. And God, in saying that, is reminding Moses of a promise he first made some 600 years earlier. We see that promise in Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. God says to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God appears to Abraham, if you would then call Abram, right? he's 
seemingly out of the blue, just kind of shows up one day and he tells Abram to pack up his things, to leave everything he's ever known behind and to move to this new land. And to move to trusting that God would lead him there. And he promised Abraham that in his obedience he would make Abraham into a great nation with descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. That he would, he would bless the whole earth ultimately through Abraham. So Abraham in, in faith obeys God and he sets out to this land that God is going to lead him to. And where God eventually leads Abraham to is this land called Canaan. right? The very same land that Moses now sees that he stands on top of Mount Nebo. And as Abraham walked that land of Canaan, God reaffirmed a promise that he would someday give that land to Abraham's offspring. That's the promise, right? That God is going to give this land to Abraham's offspring. He's going to bless the whole earth through Abraham. But from there, things don't go exactly as planned. Abraham and his family do, for for a brief moment, settle in Canaan as God had promised. But they were hardly a great nation at that point. And by the time Abraham's great-grandkids come on the scene, the whole family needs to flee the land of Canaan due to a famine. So they, they flee to Egypt, where eventually they end up in slavery for 400 years. Sometimes it's easy when we read the Bible to like let numbers wash over us and not really think about them too carefully. But the people were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. So just to give us a reference, 400 years ago, the pilgrims were landing on Plymouth Rock. Like, that's how long. The Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for as long as there have been European colonies on this continent. Generation after generation after generation after generation of Israelites died in Egypt having never seen the land that God promised Abraham and his offspring. But this did not negate God's promise. God was still at work to keep his promise to Abraham. After 400 years in slavery, God raises up Moses, who, through a series of miraculous events, leads the people out of slavery and out towards the promised land. And I look Finally, like God's promise to Abraham is finally going to come true. But as they approach the promise land, the people fail to trust God. They're scared to enter the land because of the enemies they will face there. And so, for their lack of trust, God causes them to wander around in the wilderness for 40 more years, where all those who didn't trust Him will die. And in that whole time, all those 40 years, Moses faithfully leads them putting up with all their nonsense. And after 40 long years, now God has finally brought them back to the edge of the promised land. They are ready to enter into land and to claim finally the promise that God made to Abraham all those years ago. This moment should be the highlight of Moses' life. After all those years of toil, all those years of hardship, all those years of putting up with whiny, ungrateful people, Finally, they're at the cusp of the land. And it's at this 
very moment, when the promise is finally within reach, that God called Moses up Mount Nebo, He shows him the land, and then he says, that since the land I promised, I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. That ought to be like a stop-you-in-your-tracks moment. Like God is not going to let his, his most, most, one of his most faithful servants reap the benefits of his long service. Like how could that be? Like that doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem like justice is being done. But actually, it's precisely because God is the God of justice that Moses will not enter the promised land. There was another promise God made that he must keep. <coughs> and what we see from that promise is that God is the God who keeps the promises through justice. Way back in, in number 20, in the midst of this time of the Israelites wandering through the desert, Moses was once again dealing with the Israelites complaining. This time they were complaining because they had no water. And so God, Moses, as he had done many times before, stand before God on behalf of the Israelites. And God, as he's done numerous times before, meets their need. In this case, God meets their need by telling Moses to, to call the people together and then to stand before a rock and then to tell the rock to yield water. So Moses calls the people together, as he's told. He stands before the rock, as he's told. And then he says, Listen, you rebels. Must we bring you water out of this rock? And then, presumably out of frustration, he strikes the rock twice with his staff, and water comes gushing forth. But instead of just speaking to the rock, he strikes the rock, and in response to that disobedience, God's judgment is swift and decisive. Number 20, verse 12, we read, Because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. The punishment for his disobedience is clear. Because Moses sinned, because he did not trust God enough to honor him as holy, he will not bring the people into the land. And from the time like God makes this statement until the end of his life, Moses repeatedly, over and over again, pleads with God to relent from this punishment and to let him enter the promised land. Again, surely, right, if there was ever a time for God to make an exception, if there was ever a time for God to back off his word just a little bit, this would be it. When I was a teacher, I would occasionally, in my frustration with misbehavior, I would, I would threaten some consequence that was like, far too extreme, that I, that I didn't really want to follow through with. Like, if one of you kids says like, one more word, like, no more recess all year. <laughs> Forgetting that like, recess is my favorite time of the day because they go away. <laughs> and so I'd, you know, back off. Right. And like, if I'm being honest, like when I read number 20, 
when I consider all the great things Moses did, there's a part of me that thinks, like, God, didn't you, like, go a little overboard here? Didn't you overreact a little bit? Like, couldn't you have just looked the other way on that one? Like, I feel that sometimes. But to the extent that we feel that, the extent to which we don't grasp the full weight of our sin. Now for me, like feeling the weight of my sin, something I continually need to grow in. It's always you to look around at all the sin and brokenness in the world and think, eh, I'm not that bad. Compared to so-and-so over there, compared to so-and-so over there, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. But this incident reminds us why any sin, no matter how small it may seem, is a big deal. God has no category for letting one slider, looking the other way. And so Moses will not enter the promised land. That's a just punishment for his sin. And God keeps his promise through justice. On Mount Nebo, God... brings Moses up and shows him the promised land. And he tells him that he will not enter it. It's a way to display his justice. And if God's justice and keeping his promises were the last word, it would be right, it would be fair, but it would not be good news for us. But thankfully, in addition to keeping his promises through justice, God also keeps the promises through mercy. God would have been perfectly right, perfectly just to cause Moses to die the second he struck that rock. But he didn't do that. He would have been perfectly right, perfectly just to cause Moses to die at any point in those intervening years, having never even seen the promised land. But he didn't do that either. Instead, God in his mercy, he brings <clears throat> Moses as close to the promised land as he possibly could without violating his promise. And then he invites Moses up on Mount Nebo to view the promised land. As I, as I stood on Mount Nebo and I was on that trip, like I was just struck by... What a merciful gesture. What for God to let Moses reach that point. I was struck that God showing Moses the promised land was not cruel. It was not a taunt. But it was a mercy. As you stand on Mount when you look south back into Jordan, which is the desert that Israel had been wanted, as you look back through that wilderness, through that desert. It's hard to overstate how barren the landscape is. Right? That's why they filmed the marsh in there. But then you look west into Israel, into the promised land, and the scene is strikingly different. As you look west, you see the Jordan River providing water to this wide swath of Israel. The land turned from brown and barren to green and teeming with life. And God, in His mercy, He lets Moses stand on Mount Nebo and He sees that promised land. 
He sees the life and the green and the vitality of it all. God's mercy extends even further than that. Because in addition to showing Moses the land, God also reminds Moses of his promise. And God reassured Moses that the people of Israel will inherit the land. And now Moses has continually trusted God. He knows God's promises. So it's not as though Moses needed to hear those words one more time. And yet, it still must have been so reassuring to Moses to hear that promise reaffirmed one more time by the very mouth of God himself. So what a gift that moment must have been for Moses. To stand there, to look and see the barren wasteland behind him, and the green of the promised land in front of him, and to be reassured that all those long years of wandering in the wilderness, of putting up with complaints and sin, all of it was not in vain. God keeps his promise through justice by not allowing Moses to enter the promised land. But he also keeps his promise through mercy by allowing him to see the land, by reassuring Moses that he is still keeping the promise to lead the people of Israel into that land. So with that image of the promised land fresh in his mind, with God's reassurance ringing in his ears, Moses dies. And verse 9 tells us that Joshua replaces Moses as the leader of the Israelites. And Joshua, we're told in the passage, is full of spirit, full of the spirit of wisdom. So everything seems set for a happy conclusion for the story of Israel. If this were a movie, you knew how it would play out. right? Joshua would lead the people into the land. They would take possession of the land. They would grow into the mighty nation God had promised. Everything would be great. The credits would roll and everyone would live happily ever after. But if your Bible is open to this passage, like you might notice right, we're barely 10% of the way into this thing. And I've read enough children's books to know that, that the happily ever after doesn't happen in the first 10% of the book. So instead, Joshua leads the people into the land. They're tasked with driving the current inhabitants out. And at the very beginning, they trust and they obey God. But things quickly fall apart. And throughout the book of Joshua, which is all about the people's effort to conquer the land, we see that through a combination of laziness and sin, the people fail to fully take possession of the land. And from there, the history of God's people have a, go through a series of ups and downs with, with far more downs than ups. Until eventually Abraham's descendants and the promised land itself are conquered by Assyria and Babylon. At which point God's promise to Abraham seems hopelessly lost. It seems that there can be no possible way for God to keep his promise now. But our God is a promise-keeping God, a God who keeps His promises even when all hope seems lost. And what we see throughout the rest of the Bible is God keeps His promises, but He keeps them 
in its own time. At the end of the book, at the end of our passage this morning, we read in verse 10, Since then, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And that was true at the time that it was written. There's no prophet like Moses had been raised up since then. But Moses himself also said, in Deuteronomy 18, that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. There's another prophet coming, a prophet like Moses, who God will raise up. And it is this prophet through whom God will ultimately keep his promise to Abraham. And then one day, thousands of years after Moses, the guy Jesus shows up on the scene. He starts saying things like, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And some of the people of Israel who were there at the time of Jesus, they begin to hope that this Jesus is the one who will lead them to finally claim the promise that God made to Abraham. But then Jesus dies, and all hope seems lost again. In Luke 24, following his death and resurrection, Jesus appears kind of incognito to two of his disciples. They're having this gloomy conversation. So Jesus asked them, like, what are they talking about? Like, why are you so gloomy? And they reply, about Jesus of Nazareth, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. A disciple thought that that Jesus could be that prophet like Moses, the one who would redeem Israel. But those hopes were crushed when Jesus died. But Jesus' response to those disciples are some of my favorite words in the whole Bible. Jesus replied by saying, Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. But the people of Israel had failed to realize that the only way God could ever fully keep his promise to Abraham was if he dealt with sin first. Right? Without a remedy for sin, God's justice would always demand a punishment that made it impossible for his promise to be fulfilled. Sin prevented Moses from entering the promised land. Sin prevented Israel from fully conquering the promised land. Sin led to the division and ultimately the exile of the people of Israel. God will keep his promise. But first, he must defeat sin once and for all. And that's why Jesus said that the Messiah had to suffer these things. It was the only way for sin to be dealt with so that God could fully keep His promise. The thing I, I love most about the story of Mount Nebo, the, the way God's justice and His mercy come together in 
one place. But that's only a faint picture of the way God's justice and mercy come together on the cross. On the cross. God's just wrath against sin is satisfied in Jesus' death. We receive the indescribable mercy of His forgiveness. Our God is a God who keeps His promises through both justice and mercy. We see that through Moses on Mount Nebo, but nowhere is that more clear than on the cross. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus in the way that your sins can be forgiven, then I'd urge you to do that, and to trust Jesus. Apart from your sins being taken care of, no other promise of God can be fulfilled. Maybe you're here and you're like I was for most of my life and you think, ah, I'm a pretty good guy. Surely God will let me into heaven. Let me assure you that if Moses' sin is one moment of hitting a rock in anger was enough to keep him out of the promised land after all his years of faithful service, then your sin Whatever it may be, it's more than enough to keep you from eternal life unless it's dealt with through Jesus on the cross. For those of us who are here who, who have trusted in Jesus, who know that it's been forgiven, then this assurance that God keeps His promises is an incredible gift. Especially in the face of trials and hardships. In Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews is extolling the faith of, of many of the Old Testament figures, including Moses. And he writes this. All these people, which includes Moses, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance admitting they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. They are longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Moses was able to live by faith, to trust that God would keep his promises because he knew that he was ultimately a foreigner and stranger on this earth. He knew that ultimately this world was not his home. He was able to accept not having received all the things fully promised, having not entered into Canaan, having not entered the promised land, because he was longing, we're told, for a better country, a heavenly one, the, the ultimate promised land. And we have that same hope. That no matter what hardships or trials or disappointments we have in this life, We can endure them if we, like Moses, know that this world is not our ultimate home. If we trust that God keeps His promises, that He has promised us a better country, an eternal and heavenly one, in the midst of trial and hardship, like Moses' faith as he was being told that he would not enter the land, that hope of an eternal 
heavenly, better country. It's the hope that we cling to that helps us keep our faith. So in the midst of whatever challenges and trials you may be walking through now, just invite you to remember that God is a God who keeps the promises. That your trials, your hardships are not a sign that God's promises are failing. That He's in the process of bringing them to pass. It may not be in the timeline we'd prefer. It may be in His own time. But God is at work to bring His promises to pass. He will keep them. He has promised us a better country. A heavenly one. That this world is not our home. So I just encourage you, invite you, cling to that hope. Let's pray. Father, we, we do thank you that we can cling to the fact that you are a God who keeps your promises. You have promised us a better country, a heavenly one. You are in the process of bringing about a new heaven and a new earth. You will one day come and you will right all wrongs. You will come and you will take away all pain and suffering and mourning. You will wipe away all tears and you will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. As we walk through hard times now, let us cling to that hope. Trusting that you keep your promises. We thank you for Jesus and his work on the cross. And how through Jesus, your promise that the whole world will be blessed through Abraham could come true. God, help us now as we've been singing all morning. Because we can cling to your promise and help us to be still trusting knowing that you are God and that you keep your promises we pray in Jesus name Amen as you go from here would you go clinging to that hope that God is a God who keeps the promises you are dismissed <laughs>